Good morning, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. I'm your host, Dave, and today my guests are two of my oldest friends. And in fact, back many years ago now, when I first decided to get into this podcasting and learn what podcasting was all about, they were the first two guys that I called. Chris and Jason, who are now part of the podcast, The Regrettable Century, and I started Tired of Winning, a left-leaning podcast, I think in 2016 or so. And I invited them back because their current podcast, The Regrettable Century, has done a really great job lately of breaking on the history of socialism in America, both pointing out some of its successes and, unfortunately, a lot of its flaws and sort of the degradation of the socialist movement in America. And it really brought to my attention that so often when I, especially like on online areas, people who are either called the left or oftentimes call themselves the left have very different ideals and perspectives than what I was raised on what the, it meant to be a socialist or a leftist back in you know the late 90s, early aughts. And so it's an interesting to see how that culture shift has occurred. And I thought, who better to examine that than two people who are experts on the matter and present a very historically accurate and informational breakdown of socialism in America on their own podcast, The Regrettable Century. So I want to thank Chris and Jason very much for coming on the show. I thought that they offered such amazing insights um, and information. And, you know, some of the things that they that they and I talk about might not seem commonplace in your local, you know, corner of leftism, but they're rooted in the origins of class struggle and um, class solidarity. Uh, and I think that they're important to reintroduce into our vocabulary and into our mindsets. Um, as great as social issues are, they are not the be-all, end-all of the movement and struggle against oppression. So, again, thank you to Chris and Jason for being so generous with their time. Thank you all for listening. And without further ado, today's episode is Tired of Winning or The Fallacy of the Left. Yeah, this is sort of a dual reunion in in that I've had I've well, we've all been on this podcast in, in its inception in a roundtable format. And I've had you on both individually, but the three of us and strictly the three of us on a podcast hasn't happened since the old tired of winning days. Yeah. And in our, in our early forays into podcasting. So uh, happy anniversary. Hey, yeah. Is it our yeah. anniversary? I don't know. Observed, yeah, observe, yeah. Listen, I, I we'll just pick a date because I don't remember when we actually started that podcast, but I will say that it's pretty likely that we've certainly gotten better since those days. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I I listened to um I went back and listened to an episode of one of the the first regrettable century, and I was just like, man, like why would anyone ever listen to me talk? Why would anyone listen to one <laughs> of these podcasts and then come back and listen to a second one? Chris and Jason from The Regrettable Century, and Jason has like 15 other podcasts as well. I I wanted to invite you on because I have really been enjoying your series of uh, historical looking back at socialism in America, uh, sort of its roots and sort of where it's evolved. And, and one of the things that stood out to me during one of these sort of episodes that you centered around this was this idea that most people believe that the, that the peak of sort of leftist activism occurred in the long sixties and, and listening to you all's podcasts, perhaps you would contend differently. Yeah. I sort of see that as the, um, 
kind of last gasp um not at the t- not at the beginning of a decline but you know like as somewhere down the road of a decline which really i think starts around the second world war like yeah mm-hmm. I w- it's like mid mid uh mudslide on the decline like the uh it's it's when things are really starting to the decline is really starting to pick up speed and i guess people might be curious why we think that <laughs> i think I first though i think first we should interrogate the um the reason why people think of it as a high point right and i think that my own contention is that there are two reasons the first one is that it's a relative high point compared to where we are yeah now and where mm-hmm. we have been in our in our lives you know let's say from the mid 80s to now um the other reason is because that was the youth of what was now, you know, the later generation now, their youth was during that period. So I think a lot of what, you know, kind of characterizes our, a lot of what informs our historical memory um, and kind of colors our understanding of our recent past is just that all those people are still alive and reliving the glory days in their minds and writing memoirs about it. And they're analyzing the political trajectory uh, of the country and basing uh, you, you know, using their own experiences as the point of reference, which in some ways makes sense, but I think is proving to make it really difficult to do an analysis. Well, I I also would find, and especially listening to to y'all's podcast on it, um, the long sixties feel like an accelerator into what is considered leftism now. Mm-hmm. And I and I think one of the reasons, and I'm guilty of it as well, but one of the reasons why people look back at that time period with such rose-colored glasses and, and such esteem is that it's reflective of what leftism passes for now, rooted in academia and into the intellectual elite and the educated and much more further removed from working class values, working, uh, you know, uh, labor unions and things of that nature. I don't know that the shift happened in the long 60s. It may have happened after World War II, as you mentioned, Jason, but it certainly feels like if you trace back what passes for leftism today to its pinnacle, I I would argue that the, the long sixties sort of are that it's, it's that, that just that conscious change from labor to, you know, social activism. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's the shifting of the subject, the revolutionary subject, the, the, the catalyst for change coming from the labor movement and from the, like the working class itself being seen by the, the old left, like the communist party, the socialist workers party and uh, the socialist party, all of the different uh, organizations that had previously seen um, the working class as the revolutionary subject. It, it's a shift from that into a myriad of other different subjects. And that comes as a result of uh, dissatisfaction with Stalinism Mm-hmm. And uh, the inefficacy of the later uh, of uh, of labor to labor and the old socialist parties to address issues of oppression. So it's it's sort of an overcorrection uh, that ends up becoming by the seventies uh, the neoliberalization of of social movements, so that you have each individual cause as having their own sphere of influence and uh, rarely do they ever get together on anything. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a, it's a project that centered resistance to capitalism around identity. 
um, which has had positives and negatives, like positives, we could go into that later, but the negative being that uh, it's, it's fragmented uh, what was once a unified movement. Right. Yeah. I think like if you look back at uh, like the work of somebody like Christopher Lash and he, you know, it's, it's stuff he's writing in the seventies and eighties uh, what he's describing is already a fairly long drift away from uh, a working class oriented economically populist left and toward a sort of technocratic uh, understanding of liberation as being sort of tied up in representation mm-hmm. more so than in actually changing the conditions of people, um, you know, at, at the bottom of society. And he and he's talking about it as though it's basically a process that's been going on for like a generation. And if you go back even further, like there are some, I mean, I think even into the early fifties, you already have a lot of older figures on the left people like, um, AJ Musty, who was one of the leaders of the, the, I think it's the Toledo Autolite strike. Um, and Max Schachtman, who was one of the founding members of the Socialist Workers Party and was one of the leaders of the Communist Party in the 1920s. And even in the early 50s, people like that are getting together and talking about uh, in this open way, like, how do we reconnect the socialist movement to the labor movement? So that's mm-hmm. that's like, a, you know, within a few years of the end of the Second World War, there's already this sense that like we've somehow lost our way. So when we talk about it now, what we're really talking about is like a half century plus um, of this long, long drift, which really by the time we get to the the sort of radical high points of the 60s is pretty well established. So when we when, nowadays, when we say like reconnecting to the working class, we're not talking about something that um, we have any real experience with on any mass scale, it, you know, in living memory. Yeah, I've noticed that. And I've noticed that there is this disdain from those on the left, um, starting from, and I'm, I'm using the term left very liberally, pun intended, when you consider <laughs> the neoliberals as you know, left of center of sorts, um, and certainly those who would classify themselves as democratic socialists or leftists. There, is, there seems to be this real disdain for folks that are considered working class traditionally, people from the South, people from uh, the Midwest, this sort of cultural division wherein intellectuals sort of sit upon a pedestal and know what's best for everyone. And everyone else is a racist. Everyone else is a bigot. Everyone else, if you, if you, if your taste and aesthetics are not as refined, you fall very neatly into a category of an oppressor. And I don't see how there's any world in which you unite a working class front when there's that division of culture already established. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's arguable how much of that is like a conscious project of suppression <laughs> uh, or whether or not it's just built into the mechanism of neoliberalism. And when we say neoliberalism, like to be to be clear, a lot of people use the term a lot of different ways to to refer to liberals like Hillary Clinton, um, Barack Obama, which to be sure are the left form of neoliberalism. But neoliberalism really is a political and economic project that begins in the 1970s and is centered around the uh, reorientation of, uh, of capitalism um, to be one where uh, markets are opened up militarily abroad and are privatized at home, right? 
So it's mm -hmm. about opening up new markets by privatizing industries that, that states would have held before. Part of the, like, for example, one of the neoliberal projects on the, on the right is to privatize the post office. Mm -hmm. And then it has been getting rid of welfare, getting rid of, uh, uh, a, a good example of really good example of what neoliberalism like actually is in practice is Obamacare. Where mm -hmm. it's like it, it's a state mandated, a state mandate that you have to buy private insurance. So it's the state and the and uh, the state and the market working together to to create new markets, right? So by right. forcing people to buy private insurance, you're opening up these new markets. But anyway, so how that's characterized in the United States uh, on the left is these people that are economically conservative, very economically conservative that have like the same economic ideas as the Republicans, but who speak in woke language, mm -hmm. right? So the, you have the, the paradox, the, the dilemma of, of either siding with Republicans who are bad on economics and good, uh, Republicans who are bad on economics and bad on social issues, or the Democrats who are bad on economics and nominally good on social issues because they, they speak the right language on social issues. Right. So like that puts many American leftists who would, you know, normally not vote for not vote for either party or support either party because they both have reactionary economic policies, just thinking uh, siding with for the lesser evil, which is exactly how they want us to do. You know, it's right. exactly and what I, they want us to do, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, look, and I, I think, it's also very apparent that much of what the uh, let's just call them Democrats versus leftists, much of their activism and social wokeness is a fallacy. It's window dressing. It, it has very little teeth. And not to say that there's none, because there are obviously some rights that are obtained, but largely it's just uh, it, it's it holds as much power as when when um, a, a company like Target, which obviously uses some sort of child labor overseas has a, a pride uh, display of clothing that they can mark that they, they can profit off of. It, it's, it's very much. Right. They, just... they degendered their child's clothing. So they're, that means they're progressive now while like, you know, union busting and using child labor. Yeah. 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 They, they, they degendered their children's clothing, but uh, it was still those, those children's clothes were still made by children in factories right, right. <laughs> overseas. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that. If you, this like uh, Alexa, show me you know, liberalism, show me peak liberalism. That's, that's a really good example of it. Another one is Raytheon changing their, uh, their banner on their Twitter at page um, during pride month to having, you know, <laughs> like uh, to be rainbow colored. So it's like Raytheon, which sells weapons to Saudi Arabia while they uh, vaporize Yemeni children uh, is pro LGBT. Right. 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 It, it, it dawns on me that it's not by accident, because if you're trying, if there is a movement of neoliberalism that, that spans that, that crosses aisles, as people like to say, it would behoove, the Democrat and the Liberal Party to focus everyone's attention on social issues, um, even if they're done in the most frivolous of ways, to distract from the fact that both the Republicans and Democrats are essentially have the same economic policies, which is imperialism and 
the free market and collecting capital in the hands of the few and the degradation of the middle class and basically every other class into poverty. Yeah, and I think that's that's the reason why it's important to point out the um, the constant uh, re- that redirection from questions of class and how it, it's these two these two phenomena we're talking about are sort of reinforcing. On the one hand, there's this drift away from a class orientation and, a, and an orientation toward um, this kind of understanding of what you do in the world as being a matter of your like kind of social attitudes, and that's that's mm-hmm. the marker of uh, virtue. Um, and the way in which uh, the the ruling classes of this country no longer have to to even pretend to be speaking for the little guy unless it's you know the, the liberal ruling class the liberal section of the ruling class can talk about you know marginalized people and representation and the conservative wing of the ruling class can talk about um, how those people are ma- trying to make you feel bad about you know having your traditions or whatever um, because if you ever got those people who are marginalized and those people who like conservative social attitudes to set aside um, the kind of disputes they might have about how a person should feel in their heart and mm-hmm. start talking about their bosses, um, it would be just, it would be an immense threat to the way everything that is done. So they've figured out a really good way of keeping people apart by saying, um, you can't build a movement with those people. They don't even have right. the same beliefs as you. doesn't matter that they have the same interests as you. And doesn't matter that they actually talk about their interests, uh, in terms of not having enough money to pay the bills uh, or being worried about layoffs or whatever, they can't really effectively represent, uh, they really can't effectively embody the move toward, uh, you know, addressing any of those issues because they don't think that you should have gotten married. Right. Um, and it's, right. you know, it's, it's not that those things aren't important. It's just that, we, that, that these are, these are so clearly like I, I, I would almost venture to, to uh, a guess that in boardrooms they sit around and talk about how effective it is. You know, well, it seems obvious to me also that neither side is genuinely passionate about what they preach. You know, right. um, I, I was I had a conversation briefly on the social medias yesterday and talking about uh, the attitude. Of, yeah, I know it was a huge mistake. The 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 attitudes of folks in Southern states and sort of being surrounded by more socially conservative people. And I made the comment that I think that we do ourselves a disservice by assuming that places like Los Angeles, where I live or New York or, you know, coastal cities are these meccas of progressiveness and these utopians where the attitudes of the folks here are inclusion and diversity and the like. Because the reality of it is, is that the same bias and bigotries that you could find in the South, you could find in Los Angeles and the same openness and uh, well regard for your brother, your fellow man can be found in the South, just like you presume it can be found on the coast. And I, I pose the question, is it better to be stabbed in the front with a scowl versus being stabbed in the back with a smile? Because having been born in Texas and now living in Los Angeles, that's kind of feels like what my actual yeah. decisions are. Those are my actual choices. It's not progressiveness and conservatism. It's just which way does the knife go in and and in what regard? Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, I often point out, having lived on the East Coast and 
in Texas and then also having traveled to California several times is it's just that like whether or not your racist opinions or your sexist opinions or whatever are out in the open or like hidden uh, is really sort of, I mean, okay. So, I mean, what you have, what you have on the East coast specifically is a liberal racism that is like sort of couched in different terms. Use, they use different words. There's still, Mm -hmm. there's actual higher levels of segregation in like liberal bastions like Chicago and New York and, and uh, Washington DC than there are in places like Texas where, where I grew up and they have a lot of really nice language that everybody uses and everyone, you know, everyone pretends like they're anti-racist and they, they uh, get along just fine with black people. Then I had a conversation with one of my liberal acquaintances when I was there where I told them my route when I walked, you know, to the bus or to the train station. And they're like, Ooh, you walk through that neighborhood. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, that's a bad neighborhood. You better watch out. And I'm like, those those houses look exactly the same as the houses in my neighborhood. In fact, it's right next door to my neighborhood. Like, what's different <laughs> about it? It's like, oh, it's it's a bad neighborhood. You just don't want to be walking through there. And I'm like, oh, I know what it is. It's because that's all those houses are owned by black people. You yeah. know, they're they're nice houses. They're they're just fine. I walk through that neighborhood every single day. I did it for the entire time that I was there. And I was never harassed by anybody. But like, you know, the more I talk to people, that's the way I saw that they understood things. It's just like, they're, they're just as racist as Southerners. The only thing is, is that they're like a little bit more quiet about it. Um, The racism feels more refined and distilled through a, a a softening of the language and, and how it's presented. Right. Well, it's it's a little bit more clearly uh, just contempt for the poor. Yeah. Yeah. I can see. I can see that, that, that neighborhood is a poor black neighborhood. Yeah, and so no, it wasn't. No, that's the thing is, it wasn't even a poor neighborhood. It was like you know one of those <laughs> middle class, you know, slightly lower middle class black neighborhoods in D.C. where people actually own their own houses and stuff like that. They've oh, yeah, been there yeah, for yeah. like yeah, it's just a historically black neighborhood. Um, but yeah, I, and the way I see it is that like because the South has a history of like vote suppression and gerrymandering that keeps it from voting the way that in a way that would reflect its actual demographics. Mm -hmm. Uh, People on either coast or, you know, up North are willing to just completely write off the South altogether. And I think that that, that behooves uh, the people in charge. They, They like to see divisions like that. And right. they reinforce it by ignoring places like that because practically ignoring places like the South because they know they can't win there. So the South will always be neglected by, you know, the liberals. And, uh, and then it, and it will always be a place that liberals despise as a result of it. Right. So the fact that the official political framework is abhorrent and serves the interests of two wings of a ruling class that are very happy to like go to the same country clubs after they fight their vicious battles over the budget or whatever. Um, That part should be a very obvious thing for everybody to be very upset about. And I think in some ways it is, I think people like, you know, this is, there's some common sense about that. Like all politicians are crooks and, you know, you'll always hear people like there's a kind of a, basic 
sort of political truism that uh you know both sides are are corrupt and i i'm neither left nor right and what people typically mean is i don't identify with the democratic party or the republican party uh what's what should what's more vexing and i think the, the the big question to actually try to address is like how on earth is it that that giant space where most people feel really frustrated and uh lied to like everyone's a hypocrite how is that space not being filled by this sort of nominal left this sort of return to um a kind of an insurgent critical politics that we've seen over the last four or five years ever since the bernie sanders moment the fact that the the the, the young socialists have the same contempt for the actually existing working class as do the liberal and conservative politicians uh who hate all poor people equally that that really uh that's the real question isn't it well, I, I would argue that traditionally you're right. There, there is always been this sort of sentimentality that politicians are bad, politicians are crooks. That's how I grew up. But I, I would push back that in the last, I don't know, 10 years, I think that that mentality has shifted. I think when you start looking from the Obama years and certainly through the Trump years, that idea that both sides are equally bad or, or all politicians are bad has eroded to some degree, at least on the coast, from a, no, my team is the good team. And that team is mo- literal monsters, literal Nazis, literal this. Or if you're on the other side, <laughs> Nazis that versus side is, pedophiles, right? Yeah, I was going to say pedophiles, right? That's yeah. always the two go-tos for any given side. And so while traditionally, I think your average person, your average working class person was like, yeah, politicians suck, but maybe I lean a little bit more this way, or maybe I lean a little bit more that way, I guess. Now it feels like that division and that, that hero worship, that idolatry is at an all-time high, depending on what side you are. And as a result of that, this uprising of young socialists, or what they call young socialists, democratic socialists, leftists, is raised in an environment where, where people, I think, do legitimately believe that one side is good and one side is bad. In a way that I hadn't really experienced most of my life up until like the last 10 years or so. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it. You hear a lot of talk about the way that nobody trusted the government in the '90s, right? And that Gen X mm-hmm. was the, like the, the most suspicious generation. Which it, that's one of the one of the only good things about Gen X is that they didn't trust the government. <laughs> but of course, they were the the generation that you know blew up uh, the Oklahoma City building and you know <laughs> created all the militias and everything like that. That was right. that was the right wing manifestation of not trusting the government. Um, uh, but anyway, so like I would say that all that be, oh, I, I mean, one of the perfect examples of that is conspiranoia and then like the mm-hmm. popularity of shows like the X-Files and stuff. But I think all of that changes in uh, 2001 with September 11th. And then all of a sudden, the entirety of the, these Gen, Gen Xers are getting a little bit older and have a little bit of stake in uh you know, they're owning some property, they own some businesses, they have a little bit of stake in how things are going, all of a sudden just become as big of bootlickers as the, uh, as the boomers were, right? Mm-hmm. And um, in a, a generation like the millennials who were raised on uh, fear of uh, terrorism and simultaneous fear of terrorism and fear of, uh, you know, the 
Christo-fascist Bush regime, right? Mm-hmm. As I, I heard it referred to several times growing up in the in the 2000s. Uh, well, I was already grown up, aging in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just like, it really became important to people that you identify with whoever it is that vexes the other side. So during mm-hmm. the war on terror, it's, the Republicans are fascists that are using terrorism, the legitimate fear of terrorism to, to crack down on civil liberties. And then for the Republicans, it's like Democrats hate freedom. Uh, they want to sell our country out to the Muslims and to the conspiracy of the gay Muslim communists, you know? Um, right. So it's like, yeah, it's with, with that disruption of the Id- idyllic sort of like life that everyone thought that they should be having in the 2000s comes just this need to lick the boots of authority as hard as possible. And if you're a Democrat, you lick the Democrat boots. You're a Republican, you lick Republican boots. But still, I would maintain that a majority of people in the United States don't vote at all. Right. So right. that is, regardless of how they they may project their political to political views, uh, their real views are that they don't actually trust politicians or they don't think it matters whether or not they vote because nothing is going to change. It, it reveals an utter just lack of faith in the ability of the system to do anything. Mm-hmm. So like there, there's that gigantic middle of, uh, of people who don't vote and don't care about either party. And they may post a little bit more to the left one way or a little bit more to the right the other way. But in reality, they, they have no faith in the system. Otherwise, they would vote, right? Right. I think that, that was really apparent to me when I was talking to a friend during, um, I think it was the second. No, I guess I guess it was when Trump only had one office, right? So yeah, it was when Trump was running. And right before, I guess right after the DNC screwed Bernie Sanders, um, there was this idea that that if... I was talking to this friend and she was like, if Bernie had been nominated, she would have voted for Bernie. But since he wasn't, she was voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting because from an ideological standpoint, they're fairly on the opposite ends of the spectrum, I would assume. But they both were presented as outsiders, regardless of how truthful that was. And so that is where even though from a from a policy standpoint they they probably couldn't have been more different they were at least addressing the same malaise of the working class uh when no one else was and they were presented as not your standard politicians and therefore they both seemed attractive despite their differences yeah i mean i think that 2016 really was there was a, a window for someone who looked like they were going to get in there and shake things up uh, someone like my dad, who historically has been pretty apolitical, uh, except for, you know, I guess in the 90s and the early 2000s, he was more right-leaning whenever he was tied to a more right-leaning church. Uh, he leaned right. So, and then, you know, once he got away from that church, he just didn't care about politics at all anymore. So he said that he would vote for Bernie. He was like, oh yeah, I'll vote for Bernie. Uh, yeah, he's he gets out there and he says stuff like, you know, Hillary Clinton's accepting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to give speeches, secret speeches to bankers, and uh, they want to 
keep bombing other countries and invading other countries. And Bernie wants everyone to have health care and, you know, wants you guys not to have to pay back your ridiculous student loans. So, yeah, that, that all makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, I'll vote for Bernie. Bernie didn't win, so he didn't vote, which mm-hmm. just went back to his old patterns of not voting at all. And there was an upsurge of people who would never vote who came out to vote for Bernie and who came out to vote for Trump because they were both seen as people who would shake the system up in some way. Now, what that ends up having done in in practice is sort of reinvigorate uh, this false dichotomy between the two parties and shepherd people back into partisan voting patterns. Mm-hmm. So people who normally would probably not have voted at all or you know, might vote every once in a while if there was a good Democratic candidate are so terrified of Trump that they're going to vote straight ticket Democrat every single time. Right. So that that's what that's the reality of Bernie's failure and the reality of him like just falling in line behind who, who the people who cheated him out of his uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, of his chance. Right. Well, and it's telling because the the current wave of socialism as it exists now the sort of uh, embracing of the left really starts to gain momentum with bernie sanders and you could backtrack a little bit to occupy wall street but it the it, it can't be understated how the the monster of trump has been so efficient in keeping folks from going what i would argue truly to the left, right? There's they, they it sort of it sort of acts as a cage that keeps people who might lean left into what we would traditionally call socialism in this sphere of pseudo-socialism, pseudo-leftism, barely above neoliberalism or arguably just neoliberalism. And and it, it sort of acts as a barrier so that if if one thinks to perhaps not vote for a Democrat, that that boogeyman exists to keep you in line, to keep a tether to you so that you can't drift too far to the left or or really in any other direction than the, the two main parties. Yeah, and I think I think that the the connection between this phenomenon and the historic divorce of socialism from the labor movement is like it's like a it's direct. It's one to one. Because I think uh, when we we talk about like sixty percent, I think is what it is. Uh, actually, in this last election, more people turned out to vote than uh, than they have in a very long, long time. But, right uh, on both sides, I think Trump got more votes uh, in the last election than he did the one mm-hmm. that he actually won. Yeah, he actually, and he also got more votes among women, among people of color. Um, all the things you know that historic misogynist Nazis uh, normally do were very well in. Uh, right. But um, typically, it's something like 60% of people who don't participate in the electoral arena at all. Um, even on presidential elections, it's, even, it's an even higher abstention rate when it comes to midterms. The, the fact that there has been an explosion of popularity or a rebirth of socialism, and it can only orient toward the people who are already voting, who tend to be either, you know, vote for Democrats or Republicans, that to me is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. That that actually existing working class, the one that is full of contradictory consciousness, which might have like a really, you know, progressive vision of things on you know when it comes to this question, and a really conservative or reactionary vision of things on this hand, 
like that's i think it's just like it's too complicated for people so we just stay away from it right. so this uh this rebirth of socialism as the most radical edge of liberalism i feel like it's 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 a dead end it feels like not altogether different fundamentally than what it was to be concerned about you know the the bush the bush fascists as opposed to the trump fascists and when it comes down to like what people actually do with it whether you're like um like being being a huge cheerleader for uh ocasio cortez doesn't feel all that different from being a big cheerleader for howard dean or for denis kucinich and also there's the difference between these political figures isn't all that great either the only place that i can locate uh as a, as a source for this very troubling vexing issue is that divorce between socialism and the and and the actually existing working class yeah i mean that makes sense because when you when you divorce that commonality from the movement then what you're left with is just uh, a movement that's centered around intellectualism or perceived intellectualism because only going to university makes you smart not learning a trade or a craft or being an excellent mechanic or you know hvac operator or something along those lines that doesn't count that's not skill um the sort of cultural difference i i watch very esteemed tv shows i don't watch reality tv shows like these are the things that have divided the different movements these very aesthetical differences and the larger, greater common needs are ignored or, or deemed unimportant. And it's gotten to the point where even the assertion that one should unite with someone who might have poor values or different values or reactionary values is seen as being sympathetic with uh, the alt-right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the... Um the kind of cultural concerns that are uh, dominant in liberal, liberal political circles, uh, which are sort of accepted as like the standard for what you're meant to believe. Um, and maybe even you should, I don't know, to at least to some degree, uh, mm-hmm. the, that, that stuff serves as a barrier for a lot of people in relating to the, uh, the, the I'm just going to keep saying the, the actually existing working class. Um, and so when you talk about trying to, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate these complicated places, this complicated environment where people are contradictory and sometimes very problematic or whatever, um, the charge that can be levied against you very, very effectively is that you're, um, you know, you're making too big of a compromise or Mm -hmm. you are in fact yourself kind of too much of a conservative, you know, there's the 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 in vogue accusation these days and actually for the last couple of years is that you're being red brown which oh, uh, i haven't heard that so, so red brown historically is uh refers to a tactical political alliance between uh the left and the far left and the far right so it's like uh like communists and nationalists uh, mm. a good example of that would be like in 2015 when the uh coalition of the radical left won a majority in the greek parliament but not an absolute majority. So they built a coalition government with a party called, uh, I forget what it was. The, the, the acronym was ANEL. And in Greek that I don't remember what that stands for, but they're basically like a radical nationalist party. They weren't like a, 
you know, they weren't like neo-Nazis, but they were like, you know, Greece first kind of uh, right. don't sell out to international capital, like traditional nationalists. So that would so be like, like America. Kind of like if you... We love selling out to international capital. Yeah. So <laughs> I, don't no, know but... if we, I don't know if we have like real nationalists, but sure. Yeah. But it was like, a, you know, it's a, a tactical political alliance between uh, between the, tr- the traditional forces of the far left and the radical forces of the right. Uh, and it's a very troubling thing that's uh, never produced really good results. But that's what it means to be red-brown. I see. But so in, t- in today's parlance, being red-brown means um, leaving space open in your political vocabulary or in your political attitude, in what you're willing to tolerate uh, for conservative ideas. So like if you're a, uh, this, this, this is going to feel like very much off the point, but I'll, I'll get to the point. <laughs> if you're like a person who considers themselves to be a socialist, you know, you want the workers to own the means of production, you want uh, a cooperative commonwealth, you want whatever, the end of capitalism. But you think uh, it's, uh, it's okay if, uh, you know, as, a, as, a, as the wife that you spend more time raising the kids. That's like mm-hmm. traditionalism, that's conservative, that's reactionary, that's red-brown because you have not purged the conservative ideas from your heart. Uh, you know, it's this very neoliberal way of understanding in the individual as the sole repository of, uh, you know, historical agency rather than the mass. So the workers are conservatives and reactionaries as individuals. Therefore, the working class is, uh, it's not pure enough to wage, right. to make the revolution. And if you're one of those socialists who goes around trying to figure out how to relate to people who haven't already decided in advance to be, you know, radical in all of their uh, ethics, you're being red-brown. Then, of course... That's the same thing as being a Nazi. Uh, that means get you canceled on Twitter, and that means lose your social life. And you can see how it, you know, this political environment has made it impossible, it feels, to be both an effective organizer of the working class and a representative of the forces of the political left. It's almost like that divorce is being constantly reinforced by the people who are suffering uh, from it. Well, it, it was highlighted to me, there was um, in, in a culture, in the magic community, air quotes, there was a podcast that, that grew quite a, a fever around it because one of the, the, the guests of the show, and a long, a long hour long podcast about an old manuscript. And at the very, very end of it, they start talking about um, divisive words. And the guest says, we need to move away from some of these divisive words like transphobe, racist, et cetera, et cetera. Because there is a a real authority figure that we should be uniting against, and he did throw out a term called Biden leftist, which I, depending on his intent from it, I think is one hundred percent accurate or is uh, very silly to consider anyone who is a proponent of Biden as a leftist. But the reaction to that was exactly what you just said, Jason, which is that this idea that you could possibly stand in solidarity with someone who has different values than you was seen as the same as saying, I am alt-right. And even if you yeah. have a history of not being conservative uh, in any regard, um, they'll then look at the people who follow you. And they say, well, if you have people who follow you who are conservative, you're conservative, you're alt-right. And, and so immediately all the usual bad faith players jumped in and just started levying the standard attacks of calling someone a Nazi, alt-right, racist, whatever. And then, of course, if you point this out, then you're also 
it, so there's like there is no way to even have the conversation. I mean, there will be people who will listen to this podcast and they'll say, oh, those dudes are alt right because mm-hmm. you someone because I think Chris used the term woke earlier in uh, a somewhat negative connotation. And therefore, you must be leaning to the right. And and there seems to stand, at least on social media, and I think that's an important distinction, but in the in the zeitgeist, it seems like there is no ability to even have a conversation where you find common interest mm-hmm. if if there's even remotely any scent of cultural differences. Well, so, like remember when Bernie Sanders went on Joe Rogan's podcast? The, the, and the, uh yeah. and you know, Joe Rogan has also had people who he's had Jordan Peterson on his podcast. And so a whole whole lot of people, um, I think people who mean very well and purport to speak for the for the working class, right? They have this aspiration to be representatives of the common people, you know, that uh, that which which they I think typically don't really know any of, and they sort of have this imaginary version of what that means. But they, you know, he he got he got canceled by a section of the left, and they're like, oh, he's legitimizing and platforming Joe Rogan, which honestly I don't think is the worst thing you could do, anyways. Um, but but Joe Rogan is a uh, a literal platforming Nazi. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan yeah. is the platform. Okay, He's the most <laughs> yeah. popular podcast in the world. Uh, uh, but also, you know, it's because, but but it's because Joe uh, Joe Rogan is a literal Nazi because he had on uh, Jordan Peterson, and you know, I don't really think that Jordan Peterson's all that bad either. I think he's kind of dumb. I don't think he's a literal Nazi, right? He's not a Nazi. I, he's no. bad, but he's not a he's, Nazi. He's a, he's a he's a you know relatively conservative for a Canadian is what what Jordan Peterson is <laughs> um, with a uh, social attitudes, which are about as conservative as Barack Obama in 2006. Oh uh, yeah. When, and uh, more progressive than Hillary Clinton in 2001. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, but what, what happened, what actually was happening was that Bernie Sanders was giving, you know, millions of Joe Rogan's listeners a reason to think, oh, I might actually have some socialist ideas. I might have some inclinations toward uh, the the program of this of this guy, and and maybe I'll vote for him. Which is, I think, if you if you want power, right? If you actually want to change the world and influence things in any way, that's what you want is power. Mm-hmm. And I think that the left is terrified of the idea of having power, like real power, not the right. kind of power that comes from getting you know thousands of retweets, but the kind of power which you know makes you actually responsible for the effects of what you do. I think that like we've as socialists, we've always understood um, divisions in the working class as being something that can be bridged through struggle, right? Mm-hmm. Like the idea that uh, the person next to you is a different race, different color, different sexuality, a different gender identity, whatever, uh, doesn't matter as much when you're in a fight for your life against an oppressor. Like if you're all united in a workplace struggle for higher wages or, you know, uh, uh, against the cops who are like beating up protesters or whatever, the, the person next to you becomes your comrade and you are united in struggle against an enemy force. And you have the interest in uniting with the people around you. And that's what I think that's what that's what tears down divisions between people. Mm -hmm. Um, 
of course, like there is a certain level of that that we shouldn't tolerate at all, right? Like if you bring someone in who might have different views than everyone else, and they just will not quit putting throwing those their bigotries in someone in someone's face, then yeah, of course, kick them out, get rid of them. Yeah. If they slip up and use the wrong language or whatever, and then change the way that they talk after you've asked them not to say something or whatever, that's that's what the way we used to do things, you know. Mm-hmm. Now it's if you slip up and use the wrong language, everyone's going to post about it on Twitter, and you're going to have like th- people unthinkingly just retweeting it until your life is ruined, right? And people are harassing you to get you fired from your job. So, like, I don't think that unrepentant bigots should just be accepted. I don't think that at all. I just think that people's ideas are tied to their material conditions. And if we want to change people's ideas, we have to change their material conditions. The way that the left treats people's ideas as though that by having these ideas, they're contributing to like an aggregate idea force. Like they're, I've, I've used this on the on the, the show like a number of times. They have their racism midichlorians. And <laughs> if if they have those the racist ideas, it creates racist midichlorians that go into the racism force. And that's what gives evil its power. Rather than there are material conditions that cause people to search for scapegoats. Mm-hmm. Poverty, instability, scarcity of resources, lack of access to resources. Uh, they cause people to turn on to old tropes that have been like given to them uh, in the past. And racism is one of those homophobia, transphobia. Those are also, uh, you know, these things, these divisions, artificial divisions that are imposed upon people. And if we get rid of the instabilities and the economic factors and the, the material conditions that cause ideologies to happen, those ideologies will begin to go away, right? And I yeah. think that's that's how a lot of leftists really show themselves to not have a materialist understanding of things at all. And to have a... What's funny is you'll have like scientific atheists who only believe... They believe science have the most magical idea yeah. about <laughs> idea, uh, like the most magical notions of ideas. Like if you have this idea... Simply having that idea is what's causing the problem. It's just it's it's rank idealism it, of the sort that like uh, I mean it's just it has no place in in reality. Right. Well, and that the two things stood out that you said. Number one, um, in the conversation about whether or not the, the types of people you would want to exclude from these movements, the unrepentant racist, for example, um, I would argue that along with that person. The, the leftist grifter who calls everyone a literal Nazi mm-hmm. might also not be a good agent to have in your coalition, right? It might not be the right person to unite with. Um, Absolutely. Other thing that, the other thing that's incredibly offensive to me is that you referenced something from the Star Wars prequels as part of your <laughs> metaphor, which is intolerable, Chris. Yeah, I mean, um, it, that metaphor falls apart because that's not where, meta, that's not where the force comes from. Yeah. Um, But no, you you make a good point. And I think that um, I think we should as broadly as we can, we should sort of 
define the profile of the modern day leftist, because I think that there is a lack of self-awareness in most folks who consider themselves socialist, democratic socialist, leftist, or the like. I think that they have hopped onto a movement that exists mostly in aesthetic, um, yeah. in the same way that a lot of people do. Like, the, you know, in the magic community, you have their, your, your armchair magicians who spend a lot of time reading but then don't do ritual work, don't do, don't apply themselves. And I feel like, um, and I, I would include even people who are like, consider themselves hardcore socialists. There's, there is a disconnect from what was traditionally involved with being a socialist and what passes for it now. So what, like in your estimation as, as two people who have been deeply involved in the socialist movement for 20 odd years now, uh, if not longer, what it, when you look at the landscape now, what does the modern socialist leftist look like to you? God damn it, dude! You just made me Man. think about how long I've been involved in social in the socialist movement. <laughs> it's like twenty three years, I guess, because I signed my uh, Communist Party card in nineteen ninety nine. I was gonna say, yeah, I joined the Young Communist League once I was old enough to drive. Yeah. So that was sixteen, and that was twenty one years ago. Yeah. Jesus. So you're old. So you're literally Nazis. We yeah, determine well, that. <laughs> yes, I've gotten conservative as I've aged. Um, I yeah. think it's uh, okay to have different ideas than other people as long as you're willing to fight for other people, right? Um, yeah, uh, let's see. I, I think that um, ultimately, like you've mentioned, uh, people's leftism is skin deep. It's an affectation, right? It's it's a something you put in your Twitter bio. And uh, real heads, they get super uh, super esoteric about it. They're like, "Oh, I'm a <laughs> I'm a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, uh, and Gonzaloite, right? Who <laughs> champion the Shining Path? There's actually a few people who actually champion Shining Path." from Peru, the, mm-hmm. the organization, uh, from the, from Peru in the 1980s. There are a lot of people uh, in Austin who, uh, yeah. who will like spray paint, like follow Gonzalo thought on like the side of a building and, and bust into DSA meetings, <laughs> bust into DSA meetings to rough people up because they're revisionists. Oh, so Gonzaloites, they actually bombed the Cuban embassy because they saw the Cubans as revisionists, right? Wow. Not not yeah. not communist enough. The Cubans, yeah, the Cubans weren't communist <clears throat> enough. Uh, but anyway, so like, <laughs> real heads will get real esoteric about it. But honestly, the, and I've mentioned this on the Regrettable Century like uh, several times. It's like leftists approach their political identities the way that everyone approaches everything these days. It's it's, it's something that you find online and and then you can consume it. It's not people don't become socialists because. Uh, at their workplace, the guy that got them to join the union, uh, that you know, got them to sign their union card, was a socialist. And then while you were talking to him about how you really, you're so grateful to him for getting you a raise, he said, "Well, you know, uh, there's a movement for the betterment of the entire working class," and hands you the Communist Manifesto or something like that. That's not how mm-hmm. people become socialists anymore. People become socialists because uh, of a tweet they saw and a link or a tweet thread. It's like one of 52, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and, and they just, they, it, they approach becoming a socialist or their politics, the way that you would approach dating, 
you know, there's Tinder for dating. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, uh, Uber. So you can make a little bit of extra money. There's, you know, it just, it's, it's everything is something that you can latch onto, identify with, consume uh, online because we're all so isolated from one another. This, yeah. this is the net result, the end result of neoliberalism now, because I think that we are in a declining period of neoliberalism. We're in the transition out of neoliberalism into something probably way worse. Um, but hopefully is, something that at least compels us to combine. Right. Is the complete uh, atomization, yeah, the complete no atomization of the individual. Of we are all yeah. individuals. We're all like potatoes in a sack, right? We're not like a congealed mass. We're not a collective. We we don't have communities anymore. We don't have community organizations anymore. We don't even actually, a lot of us don't even actually go to workplaces and see other people anymore. Right. So it's, well, it's atomization. That, yeah. That's kind of what I mean when I say compels us to combine. I don't think anybody, I, I don't, I don't have any faith that like a large number of people are going to make decisions to do things better. I'm thinking no. about the, or, the organization of work as a, hopefully in at least enough places forcing people into collective workplaces but okay well maybe not maybe the atomization will increase but there are collective there there are still workplaces that people go into and work together like lots and lots of people but i think Mm -hmm. it's it's that the 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 kinds of people that are drawn to the left aren't those people the kinds of people who are drawn to the left are drawn uh, are the kinds of people who are downwardly mobile, college-educated millennials who sort of expected that maybe they'd become, uh, if not professors, then maybe they could be like managers of an NGO or something, and they find themselves working at a coffee shop and also working on a screenplay in their free time. And they think, mm-hmm. this is unacceptable. I've been wronged by history. I was supposed to be doing better than this because I went to college. So they're mad about it and they, you know, talk about it on the internet and they meet other people like them and they say, you know what the problem is, capitalism, join the socialist and you click join and you've done it. You've engaged in the kind of performative ritual of becoming part of a thing and no longer an individual or no longer an isolated individual, but you still are one because Mm -hmm. the organizations of the left are built in a way which mirror the atomization that we experience and they attract those people. So when we talk about building a profile of the contemporary, the average American leftist, it's not the dock workers whose contract is expiring um, and potentially leading to a historic strike on the West Coast. It's not Teamsters who are, you know, again, going through contract negotiations, which might result in uh, a historic strike in the transportation industry. It's not members of the, um, it's not like grocery store workers who are, you know, in, I'm just, this, I'm just talking about Southern California, mm-hmm. uh, contract expired 22 days ago and they've are voted to authorize a strike. You know, there actually are like lots and lots of places just in our immediate surroundings where there are plenty of classically understood, you know, blue collar working class types who are organizing in defense of their interests. The left is just elsewhere because the left is concerned with what people, how people uh, present themselves rather than their objective experiences. So I actually think that there's, you know, this is going to be, this is where I'm going to be a person who sounds like an optimist. I actually think that there's an enormous potential to organize a political movement of working people to defend the interests of working people. And by extension, the whole of humanity, 
I just think it's got nothing to do with the left. And I think that's tragic. I say this as a person who's been a convinced socialist since, you know, I started high school. I think there are... that the, the divorce sorry. between, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up with this. The divorce between socialism and the working class is the result of and the fault of the left. So I don't, I don't think I want to uh, save the left. I just want to go elsewhere. I want to go bring the basic ideas of socialism back into the working class. And that means being involved in work as a worker with other workers. Yeah. Just letting, um, just letting the other stuff just, they can just exist over there in the Twitter sphere and they can argue about, you know, whether or not you've done enough acknowledgement of your privilege. And if that cashes out as a, as a, earn you a right to sit and be quiet in another room full of people or just like, that's fine. I don't even want to, I don't want to rage against that anymore. just let those people have it. Cause that's not my movement. That's not a movement. Mm-hmm. That's all spectacle. I want to go, I want to go where movement is still possible. Right. Well, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's, it's ironic that the term socialism and communism infer community infer collectiveness and because we live in such an atomized society, I don't even know how it would be possible to have a, a socialist or communist movement within a sphere that emphasizes that division. Mm-hmm. You know, when it exists entirely online, then um, this, this is this still this false idea that the online communities can actually exist. You might make a friend or you might keep in touch with someone you know, but it's not a community in any traditional sense. And therefore, right. how could you have a social community movement within something that completely isolates every single one of us? The other thing that jumps out is that when I look at the the modern sphere of what we call the left and I'm currently watching the show Vikings, it reminds me of, there's, there's a scene I just watched like yesterday where the heathens and the British King of Wessex have sort of have a, a tenuous alliance and they're, and they're sitting at a dinner table and they're sort of bonding in a sense. But it's very evident that the King of Wessex dis, has disdain for these, unsu- these sullied folks, these, these heathen folks, these very, um, th- he sees them as beneath him. And that's very evident. And when I look at the way modern leftists carry themselves, it reminds me of that, that British snobbery, that looking down one's nose at these filthy, unrefined working class Southerners, Midwesterners, etc. And I had a friend one time say something along the lines of like, rednecks will, ch- will save America. And I, I think that you're right, Jason. I think that if there is a labor movement to be had, it will be had with the very folks who the left sees as unworthy of acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can't like effectively organize with, speak for, integrate yourself into uh, a people that you have contempt for. If you are capable of saying the word flyover state, if you use... Uh, you know, hillbilly accent as uh, synonymous with uh, ignorance. Mm-hmm. Like you want, you want to say something's dumb, and you have to say it in that voice in order to like emphasize that you're saying it in that voice. Um, basically, if you want to uh, reify a, a, a political identity of equating uh, liberal social values and uh, aesthetic attitudes with good, right? You want to basically take what the ruling class of the society believes and and say, I believe it too, only as a socialist, 
then yeah, you're not going to get very far. In fact, you, it's it's very clear that it's, it's doing the opposite, where you have um, what, what people should be should be very alarmed by this when you flip through the ch- flip through the channels. <laughs> what is this? 1890. Uh, <laughs> hey, listen, pro- we we use TV language in our everyday life. That's where the term "canceled" come from. So that's true. You're, you're on point. Well, when you scroll through YouTube videos and you happen across uh, Tucker Carlson giving a 20-minute uh, monologue about how uh, these liberals want to drive the United States into war with Russia, they want to risk a nuclear war with another power, uh, and meanwhile, you paying $6 you know, a gallon for gas, uh, your wages are stagnant, jobless, you know, the jobless rates are soaring, uh, everything costs anywhere from 15 to 50 times as much as it did five years ago, we should be very alarmed that those are right-wing talking points. That's supposed Mm -hmm. to be us, right? Now, of course, here I am being Red Brown again, saying that Tucker Carlson (laughs) has a point, but he shouldn't have a point because he's a charlatan, right? He's actually a, he's like a multi-millionaire pundit whose primary job is to convince you to vote for people like Donald Trump. Right. Who obviously have contempt for, for poor people. Yeah, he's but a total grifter. I don't think he believes any of the stuff no, that he says. Of course not. Absolutely not. But he's doing a better job of promoting this kind of basic populist consciousness of rich people are rich because you're poor and they're trying to ruin they're ruining your life and they don't care. That's supposed to be us saying that. Instead we're mm-hmm. you know, we're still debating whether or not it's okay to give the head of a company uh, more power to fire workers if that worker says something problematic on the internet. So the, the, the real danger is that we could have, in a situation of economic crisis, like during the next recession, we might actually have a situation where the organization of labor and you know, scary right-wing conservatives are sticking up for workers, and then you have socialists and bosses talking about diversity in the workplace. That, that can't be the situation that we're driving at. I mean, diversity in the workplace is important. But I don't think the way that we get it is by telling our bosses to fire us and open up spaces to hire other people. I think that's a losing game. That's a way of pushing workers into the arms of the right. Right. Well, and it, it does feel like there has been a movement to empower employees to manage morality. Um, we, you know, I made the joke about canceling earlier, but that essentially is kind of what canceling is. It is regardless of whether or not people recognize it as this. It is this movement to empower your employer to punish you yeah. to, to deliver punitive uh, uh, results based on a disagreement of your personal beliefs. So we talk about diversity in the workplace and we're talking about generally race or, or gender identity or sexuality or whatever, but we're not talking about people who have different ideas than us. We're not talking about people who come from different regions than us. They're, we're not talking about people who are maybe quote unquote less refined than us. The, the person who likes NASCAR versus uh, the opera. We're not talking about that when we talk about diverse diversity and diverse ideas and diverse voices. We're talking about only surface, I don't want to say surface level things because that's not true, but we're only talking culturally in terms of gender, race, and sexuality. We're not talking about culture in terms of regional cultural differences and different norms. And it is hard to see how we would ever form any sort of united front against the mounting oppression of stagnant wages, increased costs, 
increasingly expensive housing, the, 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 the plummeting of the standard of living, when we're more caught up with surface level aesthetics, it feels to me like any, any hope for a working class movement is going to have to be completely separate from what we consider the left now. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I like I, I had this conversation about this. I, I think it was some. I think it was the Star Wars show. Somebody got fired for a transphobic tweet. Mm. The Star Wars show. One of the Star Wars shows. It was for some Star War. And this friend of mine was saying, "Good, you know, it's good that this person got fired." And I said, "I actually think it's really bad that they got fired." And it became a bit of a debate. And I said, "Well, you know, what do you think people should be allowed to just, you know, to say stuff like that?" And it's like, I think that you shouldn't be allowed to be fired from your job because of what you believe in. I think mm -hmm. if you make your workplace um, unfriendly and unsafe for your coworkers, your coworkers, because they should have a union, right? They should be able to uh, discipline you up to and including calling for, you know, releasing you from your contract or whatever, because you should have a contract. But the organization of labor is the way in which we make our workplaces more safe, both in terms of safety, uh, like, you know, pandemic, uh, like, you know, COVID restrictions or hard hats, and also uh, the way we treat each other with, you know, the modicum of respect that is required to have a safe working environment. But in both cases, it's a, it's a matter of the organization of labor and taking away power from the boss. So, yeah, I don't think that this left has any interest in or understanding in those uh, uh, those terms. So I think what we might find is that if there is any hope, uh, it will come in the form of basically going over and around this left rather than through it. I think that uh, largely the kinds of people who are, you know, crusading as, you know, the, the Marxist-Leninist version of the liberal inquisition are just not going to be the people that, that, that do it. They're going to be somewhere between uh, non-entities to obstacles, to uh, any, any kind of revival of like a working class consciousness of the kind of like forward momentum that we romanticize about the 1930s during, you know, when it, when it was, uh, and it was life or death that you got along with people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the black and white workers had to stick together. Uh, documented and undocumented workers had to stick together because it was literally life and death. And on those terms, mm -hmm. you know, a, a movement builds itself. And I think there's a kind of person on the left who will shudder at the thought of all of these uh, problematic, you know, people in flyover states getting together uh, and, and, and not going through the fucking HR department to talk about the rules first. Yeah. I, I would, I would even argue to say it's most, folks that consider themselves leftists to, to the point where I would almost argue that it's, it's time to maybe entirely abandon some of that terminology because it's so rooted in something divorced from its origin. It doesn't remind me of anything I ever believed in, in any regard. Um, it's an elite class and, and only an elite class. It's, it's a, a class of gatekeepers of standard bearers of curators of class, not anything rooted in struggle. Uh, and I think with the advancement of technology, it's easier to isolate oneself and it's desirable to isolate oneself. 
and we start moving into more technological advances of uh, the prospect of a metaverse, the where where jobs will, and, and and even religious organizations will be moved into this digital frontier. It's just it's like the and, worst, and, and people, the worst possible future. Hell but, world. But, but folks on the left seem to be embracing this, which is yeah. again contrary to what you would think someone who considers himself a leftist or a socialist would want to do. Yeah, they seem I to feel, feel like... like technology and science is the savior of all that all the ills of the world. Yeah, I feel like I I think to to an extent I think I might even agree with you about you know distancing ourselves from this thing this that we call the left. I feel like uh I might be okay with saying, you know, you can have the left, you can keep it. I just want the workers movement. But there but there but we do have there does feel like at this point there needs to be a distinction. Because I think the idea that we're yeah. going to somehow repurify the left or or reorganize the left or get the get the left to move away from whatever exists now and go back to its roots is probably not likely to occur at this yeah. point. I mean, it may take several generations and Frankly, it may just continue to move in a worse direction than it already has. I mean, we talked about at the beginning of the show. This really starts around the end of the 1930s. It kind of uh, accelerates in the in the 60s, and now we are here. So it's not like this is new. Right. This isn't really like it's the last 10 years. It may be more apparent to me in the last 10 years, but when you look back at it, this has been a a steady and uh, increasingly quick decline from its origins to the point where I, I don't know. I, I feel like we may have crossed a point of no return in terms of that ever being back what it was. Yeah. I mean, there is um, a conversation maybe for another time um, just cause I don't, I don't, wouldn't know how to get into it today, but it has been uh, something I've thought about that like, you know, it, it might be worth considering what it would look like and how might we recognize if we no longer lived in an era in which, there was a clear mission for the working class and a clear political expression of that mission in the form of socialism. Um, I don't know what that would mean. It, to me, it would mean the eclipse of civilization, which is kind of what it feels like that we're living through. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but uh, Taking climate change into consideration, I think you might be <laughs> perfectly correct. Yeah. I think for now, maybe what we can say is uh, the left of what? Someone says, right. "Oh, you know, oh, I, yeah, that that's a that's a leftist, or you know, I'm I'm uh, on the left." I'd say, "On the left of what?" Because I think there's a left wing of capital, and it's the one that says, "You know, the the road forward in humanity for humanity is this," but you know, with the rainbow flag. Mm -hmm. And then there's a right wing of capital which says the road forward for humanity is this, um, with the stars and stripes. And, uh, you know, we can we can line up our sides accordingly and we can duke it out. And in the end, capital wins because capital is blind. It's a, it's a force, almost like a force of nature, like egregore, right? It does its own mm -hmm. thing and it, in, it shapes us and it influences us and we shape it and influence it. But it doesn't have values. It doesn't care where profits come from, just so long as there are profits. So if you're on the left wing of that, I just, I, we don't have an affinity. You're equally on the wrong side, in my mind. Yeah. Then there is a left wing and a right wing of you know, the people to just put it in the broadest terms. Are you a left populist or a right populist? Are you, mm -hmm. a, if you're a left populist, I would say, yeah, you know, let's, we're talking about socialism. We're talking about getting everybody together on the basis of common interests. And if you're a right populist, you're 
very scary and we can't unite with you either our problem is that there really is only one side here for us there are three sides total and two of them are equally bad i think the language of populism is maybe a way to start talking about uh just making a distinction in terms of what sorts of things we want to be engaging with there was a moment whenever um i think despite themselves they started uh the you know the media in this country started to make it very clear what the real divisions are because they talked, it was in 2016, they talked about um, the danger of populism, and they would refer to both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump as uh, twin aspects of populism. And that's a scary thing for them, because what they meant by that was not rule by experts, but rule by the mob. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I am of the school of thought that says that the mob is historically a, uh, not just a spiritually cleansing force, but also it's it's more like it's the 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 the... the wave of progress always comes uh, behind the mob, right? The mob makes the revolution, 1776, 1789, 1917, etc. Um, but it is also the case that, uh, you know, the, that, that right populism is a, is a thing which I think is, we should be against, right? So there's two ways you can whip up a mob. One's a lynch mob, right? Or rather, there's two ways you can whip up a lynch mob. One of them goes after, after uh, oppressed people and one goes after oppressors. And so... Uh, you know, if we got the technocratic rule by experts, whether they're woke or not woke, that's the left, that's the capital side. We already have that figured out. seems like the real, the real debate is which kind of populist do you want to be? Do you want to be uh, the kind that drives a Donald Trump into office or the kind that drives uh, a Bernie Sanders into office? I was say, or the kind that drives a mob into the Capitol and then... Yeah, wait. that's what I was going to say, <laughs> but... Uh... Well, and, and then because the left and right of capital, both both throw their lot in with authoritative role, whether it's uh, this idea of the sort of nationalist um, oppression, right? The sort of totalitarian oppression or corporate oppression, um, technocrat oppression. Yeah. The, when, when you, when you talk about the left and the right of capital, both are clamoring for the same thing, which is elite rule over them. Right. Whether they're conscious of it or otherwise. Yeah. Whether you're, whether you, you're Hillary Clinton or George Bush, feel like you're you basically you stand for the same thing and it turns out if you're donald trump you also do the only thing left pretty to much find, every politician yeah the only thing left to, fi- to figure out is whether or not the mob can be uh so effectively whipped up for long enough that it produces new leaders um, and i think in order to do that you have to be able to speak the language of the mob and that means setting aside the language of capital of technocracy of elites so um i also think that the terminology we use doesn't matter as much because it's going to change anyway I mean, it's, it's all about, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like we, we're going to find the magic word of what to call ourselves and everyone's going to agree with us. Um, mm-hmm. That'd be tight. Uh, but I think that I just don't think it works that way. Um, it's it's going to be about what we do, right? So building movements, b- building around labor is going to be, I mean, it is the only thing that's ever worked in as much as anything has ever worked. Uh, it's going to be the way to move forward if it's still possible to move forward. I'm hedging everything I say a lot, huh? Um, well, I mean, look, it's just, I think over the last late 30, early 40s uh, years of our lives, I think there's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic and to hedge what we say because, frankly, we've been living in an era of decline and yeah. it's getting, and everything's getting worse and it's getting worse at an accelerated rate, at least from a standard of living perspective. You know, 
more people have rights, quote unquote, but only rights as they exist under capitalism, right? You probably have no shot at owning a home, realistically. Uh, yeah. your, your ability to speak freely is diminished every day. So freedom of speech goes away, freedom of ideas go away, freedom of um, the ability to, to be prosperous on your own terms goes away. But you're still captive under the oppression of less and less worth, less and less ownership, less and less freedom and sovereignty. Those things, no matter what freedoms you're given, those that, that same decline, you're still a part of that. You, you aren't superseding that in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If anything, are you just being placated so that you accept that decline more easily? Special thanks to Chris and Jason once again for coming on the podcast and sharing all their insights and knowledge and perspectives as it relates to leftism and the culture of leftism as it is in America and how it used to be in its heyday. Um, you know, again, I, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, there are things that we talk about that I know for many folks who might consider themselves left leaning or leftist uncomfortable. This idea that you have to form coalitions or uh, unify or unite based on struggles with people who don't share the same values as you. And I think and I hope that we highlighted that it is important to maintain and to strive for more accepting and diverse cultures. Uh, social movement is important. We all benefit from it. Um, Social rights over the years are important. And that being said, I think that we sometimes forget that those rights that we gain on the social level were done through struggle and were oftentimes done with many people who may not have shared the same morals or culture, but they shared the same interest. And so we have forgotten that the rights that we are afforded came with strife, came with uniting with people you didn't always get along with. It wasn't done through muting and blocking and isolating yourself and siloing yourself. It was done through solidarity. There's a reason that term holds as a banner or a slogan for a united workers front. And we've gotten away from that in a lot of regards. And so I hope that what we were able to do was highlight some of the reasons why this has occurred so that we can all be aware of it and we can reintroduce this idea of class struggle into our vocabulary, into our political minds, into our social political minds as we interact and operate with the world at large. Um, I have, you've listened to this show a lot, you know that I'm very big on the idea of community and picking the right community and, and having a diverse group of people around you so that you grow as a person. And I think that's very important, not just from protective classes when we talk about diversity, but also the difference of ideas. We are stronger when we are challenged. We are stronger and we are sharper when our tightly held preconceptions are, are put to the test or put to the flame to see if they uphold. Sometimes they do and they get stronger. And sometimes we realize Perhaps there was a different perspective that we, we never recognized the whole time. And so that's what the hope of this podcast is, to get you thinking and get you maybe reexamining what you consider the left. What part of the struggle do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the left, right side of capital? Or do you want to be more on the left of a populist movement that is based in working class struggle? I know where I stand. So thank you all for listening. Thank you once again for supporting this podcast. And until next time, gold rings on you all.